Part three of Vices Are Not Crimes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vices Are Not Crimes by Lysander Spooner. Part three. Twenty one. But it will be said again that the use of spirituous liquors tends to poverty, and thus to make men paupers and burdensome to the taxpayers, and that this is sufficient reason why the sale of them should be prohibited. There are various answers to this argument. One answer is that if the fact that the use of liquors tends to poverty and pauperism be a sufficient reason for prohibiting the sale of them, it is equally a sufficient reason for prohibiting the use of them, for it is the use and not the sale that tends to poverty. The seller is at most merely an accomplice of the drinker, and it is a rule of law as well as of reason that if the principle in any act is not punishable, the accomplice cannot be. A second answer to the argument is that if government has the right and is bound to prohibit any one act that is not criminal merely because it is supposed to tend to poverty, then by the same rule it has the right and is bound to prohibit any and every other act though not criminal, which, in the opinion of the government, tends to poverty and on this principle the government would not only have the right, but would be bound to look unto every man's private affairs and every person's personal expenditures, and determine as to which of them did and which of them did not tend to poverty, and to prohibit and punish all of the former class. A man would have no right to expend a cent of his own property, according to his own pleasure or judgment, unless the legislature should be of the opinion such expenditure would not tend to poverty. A third answer to the same argument is that if a man does bring himself to poverty, and even to beggary, either by his virtues or his vices, the government is under no obligation whatever to take care of him, unless it pleases to do so. It may let him perish in the street, or depend upon private charity if it so pleases. It can carry out its own free will and discretion in the matter, for it is above all legal responsibility in such a case. It is not necessarily any part of a government's duty to provide for the poor. A government, that is a legitimate government, is simply a voluntary association of individuals who unite for such purposes and only for such purposes as suits them. If taking care of the poor, whether they be virtuous or vicious, be not one of those purposes, then the government, as a government, has no more right, and is no more bound to take care of them, than has or is a banking company or a railroad company. Whatever moral claims a poor man, whether he be virtuous or vicious, may have upon the charity of his fellow men, he has no legal claims upon them. He must depend wholly upon their charity if they so please. He cannot demand as a legal right that they either feed or clothe him, and he has no more legal or moral claims upon a government, which is but an association of individuals, than he has upon the same or any other individuals in their private capacity. Insomuch then as a poor man, whether virtuous or vicious, has no more or other claims legal or moral upon a government, for food or clothing than he has upon private persons, 
A government has no more right than a private person to control or prohibit the expenditures or actions of an individual on the grounds that they tend to bring him to poverty. Mr. A, as an individual, has clearly no right to prohibit any acts or expenditures of Mr. Z, through fear that such acts or expenditures may tend to bring him, Z, to poverty, and that he, Z, may, in consequence, at some future unknown time, come to him, A, in distress, and ask charity. And if A has no such right as an individual to prohibit any acts or expenditures on the part of Z, then government, which is a mere association of individuals, can have no such right. Certainly no man who is compass mentis holds his right to the disposal and use of his own property by any such worthless tenure as that which would authorise any or all of his neighbours, whether calling themselves a government or not, to interfere and to forbid him to make any expenditures except such as they might think would not tend to poverty, and would not tend to ever bring him to them as a supplicant for their charity. Whether a man who is compass mentis come to poverty through his virtues or vices, no man, nor body or men, can have any right to interfere with him on the ground that their sympathy may sometime be appealed to in his behalf, because, if it should be appealed to, they are at perfect liberty to act their own pleasure or discretion as to complying with his solicitations. The right to refuse charity to the poor, whether the latter be virtuous or vicious, is one that governments always act upon. No government makes any more provision for the poor than it pleases. As a consequence, the poor are left to suffer sickness and even death, because neither public nor private charity comes to their aid. How absurd, then, to say that government has a right to control a man's use of his own property, through fear that he may sometime come to poverty and ask charity. Still, a fourth answer to the argument is that the great and only incentive which each individual has to labour and to create wealth is that he may dispose of it according to his own pleasure or discretion, and for the promotion of his own happiness and the happiness of those to whom he loves. Footnote. It is of this incentive alone that we are indebted for all the wealth that has ever been created by human labour, and accumulated for the benefit of mankind. End of footnote. Although a man may often, from inexperience or want of judgment, expend some portion of the products of his labour injudiciously, and so as not to promote his highest welfare, yet he learns wisdom in this, as in all other matters, by experience, by his mistakes, as well as by his successes and this is the only way in which he can learn wisdom. When he becomes convinced that he has made one foolish expenditure, he learns thereby not to make another like it. And he must be permitted to try his own experiments, and to try them to his own satisfaction, in this as in all other matters, for otherwise he has no motive to labour, nor to create wealth at all. Any man who is a man would rather be a savage and be free, creating or procuring only such little wealth as he could control and consume from day to day, than to be a civilised man, 
knowing how to create and accumulate wealth indefinitely, and yet not permitted to use or dispose of it, except under the supervision, direction and dictation of a set of meddlesome, superserviceable fools and tyrants, who, with no more knowledge than himself, and perhaps not half so much, should assume to control him, on the ground that he had not the right or the capacity to determine for himself as to what he would do with the proceeds of his own labour. A fifth answer to the argument is that, if it be the duty of government to watch over the expenditures of any one person, who is compassmentous and not criminal, to see what ones tend to poverty and what do not, and to prohibit and punish the former, then, by the same rule, it is bound to watch over the expenditures of all other persons, and prohibit and punish all that, in its judgment, tend to poverty. If such a principle were carried out impartially, the result would be that all mankind would be so occupied in watching each other's expenditures, and in testifying against, trying and punishing such as tended to poverty, that they would have no time left to create wealth at all. Everybody capable of productive labour would either be in prison, or be acting as judge, juror, witness or jailer. It would be impossible to create courts enough to try or to build prisons enough to hold the offenders. All productive labour would cease, and the fools that were so intent on preventing poverty would not only all come to poverty, imprisonment and starvation themselves, but would bring everybody else to poverty, imprisonment and starvation. If it be said that a man may at least be rightfully compelled to support his family, and consequently to abstain from all expenditures that, in the opinion of the government, tend to disable him to perform that duty, various answers might be given. But this one is sufficient, viz. that no man, unless a fool or a slave, would acknowledge any family to be his, if that acknowledgement were to be made an excuse by the government for depriving him either of his personal liberty or the control of his property. When a man is allowed his natural liberty and the control of his property, his family is usually, almost universally, the great paramount object of his pride and affection, and he will, not only voluntarily, but at his highest pleasure, employ his best powers of mind and body, not merely to provide for them the ordinary necessities and comforts of life, but to lavish upon them all the luxuries and elegancies that his labour can procure. A man enters into no moral or legal obligation with his wife or children to do anything for them, except what he can do consistently with his own personal freedom, and his natural right to control his own property at his own discretion. If a government can step in and say to a man who is compassmentous and who is doing his duty to his family as he sees his duty, and according to his best judgment, however imperfect that may be, we, the government, suspect that you are not employing your labour to the best advantage for your family. We suspect that your expenditures and your disposal of your property are not so judicious as they might be for the interests of your family." and therefore we, the government, will take you and your property under our special surveillance, and prescribe to you what you may and may not do, with yourself and your property, and your family shall hereafter look to us, the government, and not to you for support. If a government can do this, all a man's pride, ambition, and affection relative to this family would be crushed, 
so far as it would be possible for you materially to crush them. And he would either never have a family, whom he would publicly acknowledge to be his, or he would bisque both his property and life in overthrowing such an insulting, outrageous and insufferable tyranny. And any woman who would wish her husband, he being compass mentis, to submit to such an unnatural insult and wrong, is utterly undeserving of his affection, or of anything but his disgust and contempt. And he would probably very soon cause her to understand that, if she chose to rely on the government for the support of herself and her children, rather than him, she must rely on the government alone. 22. Still another and all-sufficient answer to the argument that the use of spirituous liquors tends to poverty is that, as a general rule, it puts the effect before the cause. It assumes that it is the use of liquors that causes the poverty, instead of it being the poverty that causes the use of liquors. Poverty is the natural parent of nearly all the ignorance, vice, crime and misery there are in the world. Footnote Except those great crimes which the few, calling themselves governments, practice upon the many, by means of organised systemic extortion and tyranny, and it is only the poverty, ignorance and consequent weakness of the many that enable the combined and organised few to acquire and maintain such arbitrary power over them. End of footnote. Why is it that so large a portion of the labouring people of England are drunken and vicious? Certainly not because they are by nature any worse than other men, but it is because their extreme and hopeless poverty keeps them in ignorance and servitude, destroys their courage and self-respect, subjects them to such constant insults and wrongs, to such incessant and bitter miseries of every kind, and finally drives them to such despair that the short respite that drink or other vice affords them is, for the time being, a relief. This is the chief cause of the drunkenness and other vices that prevail among the labouring people of England. If those labourers in England, who are now drunken and vicious, had had the same chances and surrounding in life as the more fortunate classes have had, if they had been reared in comfortable and happy and virtuous homes, instead of squalid and wretched and vicious ones, if they had opportunities to acquire knowledge and property and make themselves intelligent, comfortable, happy, independent and respected, and to secure to themselves all the intellectual, social and domestic enjoyments which honest and justly rewarded industry could enable them to secure, if they could have had all this instead of being born to a life of hopeless, unrewarded toil with a certainty of death in the workhouse, they would have been as free from their present vices and weaknesses as those who reproach them now are. It is of no use to say that drunkenness or any other vice only adds to their miseries, for such is human nature, the weakness of human nature, if you please, that men can endure but a certain amount of misery before their hope and courage fail, and they yield to almost anything that promises present relief or mitigation though at the cost of still greater misery in the future. To preach morality or temperance to such wretched persons, instead of relieving their sufferings or improving their conditions, is only insulting their wretchedness. Will those who are in the habit of attributing men's poverty to their vices, instead of their vices to their poverty, 
as if every poor person, or most poor persons, were specially vicious. Tell us whether all the poverty within the last year and a half have been brought so suddenly, as it were in a moment, upon at least twenty millions of the people of the United States, were brought upon them as a natural consequence either of their drunkenness or of any other of their vices. Was it their drunkenness or any other of their vices that paralysed, as by a stroke of lightning, all the industries by which they lived, and which had but a few days before been in such prosperous activity? Was it their vices that turned the adult portion of those twenty millions out of door without employment, compelled them to consume their little accumulations, if they had any, and then to become beggars? beggars for work, and, failing in this, beggars for bread? Was it their vices that all at once, without warning, filled the homes of so many of them with want, misery, sickness, and death? No. Clearly it was neither the drunkenness nor any other vices of these labouring people that brought upon them all this ruin and wretchedness. And if it was not, what was it? This is the problem that must be answered, for it is one that is repeatedly occurring and constantly before us, and that cannot be put aside. In fact, the poverty of the great body of mankind the world over is the great problem of the world. That such extreme and nearly universal poverty exists all over the world, and has existed through all past generations, proves that it originates in causes which the common human nature of those who suffer from it had not hitherto been strong enough to overcome. But these sufferers are at least beginning to see these causes, and are becoming resolute to remove them, let it cost what it may. And those who imagine that they have nothing to do but to go on attributing the poverty of the poor to their vices, and preaching to them against their vices, will ere long wake up to find that the day for all such talk is past. And the question will be then, not what are men's vices, but what are their rights. End of part three. End of Vices Are Not Crimes by Lysander Spooner.